0: Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast from Netflix. I'm Melissa Slaughter, and I'm hosting this week's episode. Here on You Can't Make This Up, we go behind the scenes of Netflix original true crime stories with special guests. Today, we have a documentary film following the rise and fall of yoga guru Bikram Chowdhury. Returning hosts Kevin Flynn and Rebecca Lavoie speak with director Eva Orner and lawyer Mickey Jaffa Bowden about the man who popularized yoga in America and preyed on the very women who trusted him. A warning to listeners today's episode will cover sexual assault. Now, here's Kevin, Rebecca, Eva, and Mickey.
1: So, Eva Orner, you're the director of this film. And so, our listeners know, I'm trying to remember, you're the one with the Australian accent.
2: Yes, right? that is me.
3: Easy to identify.
1: <laughs> and we also have Mickey Jaffa Bowden, uh, and you're the one with the English accent.
3: That is correct. Hi, Kevin and Rebecca. Mickey here.
4: Hello. It's wonderful talking to you both. Uh, Eva, I'm curious, why. Did you make this documentary? How did you hear about this story? This one was actually
2: brought to me uh, by a development executive in a London-based production company after she saw my last film. And she actually was an avid Bikram practitioner, and she'd moved to hot yoga sort of after the scandals. And she gave me a couple of articles and said, is this of interest to you? And I knew a little about him. I'd read a little bit um you know i'd watched him a little bit over the years i didn't know a lot but i knew enough to know there was a story there so i did a little digging and a little researching and pretty quickly i thought oh i could very happily spend some time in this story <laughs> i knew straight away there was something there was something here and it was it was pretty extraordinary
1: how about we start sort of at the beginning and explain who bikram choudhury is and why he's an important figure
2: so bikram choudhury is As as the film says, he's a yogi and a guru. He's a man who came from Calcutta to America in the early 70s. He landed in Beverly Hills and... brought his unique style of yoga that he called Bikram yoga, which is hot yoga. It's 26 by two postures, a 90 minute class. He brought it to LA in the 70s and it took off like wildfire. Celebrities were hooked. People loved it. People got results. They got great bodies. They felt fantastic. And so it became this huge thing. And basically until now, over the last 50 years, it's become a phenomenon. It's practiced around the world. You know, it's in Australia, it's through Europe, it's through South America. Asia, it is huge. It's popular and it works. It's actually pretty good. I've done a bunch of classes now, as I had to to get into the community and get to know people. And while it's not my preferred form of exercise, it actually (laughs) it does really help with injury. And you know, it's it's a really good workout. What happened? He amassed a huge amount of money. Uh, He became super famous. You know, he became in some ways like other. Indian gurus who came to the West, you know, he amassed a fortune, he had flashy cars, a lot of them, you know, the the Bentleys and the Rolls Royces, he had flashy clothes. And then things started getting a little bit crazy. And where it's ended up now is that he has been accused of sexual assault, harassment and rape by a number of women. He's settled with a number of women. And one woman who's here now, uh, Mickey Jaffa Bowden, successfully took him to court civilly in the US, in California, several years ago. Uh, the, the The trial was successful and he was convicted unanimously of all counts and he was awarded to pay her around $8 million. And he subsequently fled the country Transferred all his assets to his wife and they divorced. And he is now a fugitive in America and he has never paid that money. And there's still a bunch of women's cases outstanding that haven't been settled. And it appears that there are, this has been going on for a long time. It's not a handful of instances, but there are, this has been going on for many, many years. So it's, you know, it's the classic story of, you know, the American dream gone badly.
4: Well, one of the things that's so interesting to me about Bikram Chaudhary's story is a lot of it is built seemingly on... I guess we'll just call them lies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he and, and you explore this in the documentary. He claims to have invented something that he probably did not invent or mm-hmm. did not invent. He then went on and, and really got successful because he franchised it as a brand and made it, you know, so people had to go through a certain series of steps and pay a certain amount of money to be able to use the name. That was really like—
1: And President Nixon was so nice to him. The trademark. And, and the Elvis Nixon and- story.
4: And Elvis. I mean, to me, the, the Nixon story is the one that just, you know, this idea that— that like a former president had shattered his leg and I you know he, he called Bikram and he was like, you know, he, then he was just up and walking. I'm like, what? Like,
1: like the most, he's telling provable, the story on television. That, yeah. The one that be, <laughs> you could disprove the yeah. easiest. Yes. He just, uh, anyhow, I guess.
4: Well, I guess my question is how important is it to, you know, reveal this foundation mm-hmm. of untruths. I mean, the sexual assault stuff is bad enough, but how much do you think the sort of foundation of untruths plays into that? You know, is this sort, does he sort of have a sense that he can get away with anything at this point?
2: One of the most challenging parts of the film, in a way, is you have to capture Bikram and you have to really capture what it is about him that attracted so many people And afforded him all of this success, but also afforded him all of these fans and people who loved and adored him that then became, that then put themselves potentially in a position where they were in danger. And so we had to really capture him and his charm and his you know, the the charisma and what people loved about him. And that was actually one of the things I found the hardest because I came into this from the, you know, from the back end. I came into this not thinking he was the most, you know, upstanding guy. And so the first act of the film, we had to kind of portray him as something pretty fantastic because, you know, the people in the film are smart, good people, and I didn't want to, you know, disservice them and discredit them by not painting a picture of someone that you would fall for and that you would get hooked into. And so that was was a really interesting challenge for me, all the while knowing that in Act 3 of the film, we would have to basically take all of that down and dispel all of these myths that he'd created about himself, and that was structurally a real challenge in the film, but it was also one of the most gratifying and fun parts of the film.
1: I got to know, how did you, I mean, right off the top, how did you get all this video? Because I don't see how you do this documentary without it.
2: (laughs) No, and it's actually a really good question that I'm not exactly going to answer because there's the tricks of the trade and then I would have to kill Mm. you. But, um, I mean, the film was always going to be a large archive film because it's mostly past tense um, and also because we can't exactly get access to him Uh, Anymore. And the film ended up being 60% archive, which is a lot of archive. And we had an incredible team, you know, our editors, our assistant editor, and our head archivist, you know, scouring the globe for everything and anything they can get. And I think the big trick with archive is you never say no to anything, you look under every rock. And you know, one of our biggest caches of archive we got took over a year to get, and we seriously got it about four weeks before we were locking the picture, and, and and you know that makes it it always makes it sort of more tense and more exciting and 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 more terrifying in a way because you're always looking for that elusive piece of footage. Um, but there's quite a lot there's quite a lot out there that was existing, and we were just trying to find things that nobody had seen before.
4: I hope one of the bits that you got at the last minute and were able to include was the bit where we see everyone in the giant hot room and Bikram sitting up there with the air conditioner only pointed at himself.
2: (laughs) We actually got that early.
4: (laughs) Okay. Because to me, that tells you everything you need to know about this person, right?
2: Yeah, and that's actually, as I recall, that's Mickey saying that story. He tells us the story of him having his own personal air conditioning. And the film's only screened a couple of times publicly at festivals so far. And I will say that's one of the moments that does get some
3: laughs in the audience. Some, Some laughs, yeah. And, you know, that's actually a still, this is Mickey here, that we used during my trial because we were trying to show the jury how, you know, completely ridiculous and, you know, th- th- this man was basically what a complete lunatic he was. So he's making people do yoga in like sweltering temperatures over 120 degrees when the maximum should be about 105, 107 and no more.
4: I mean, it is one thing to hear this story or to read the story. is another thing to see it because you really do have to understand, uh, you know, the power dynamic involved here insofar as Bikram really having so much sway over so many people. We're not talking about like two people. We're talking about thousands of people. Really seeing the physicality of the trainings, seeing him doing those like standing on, you know, people's bodies and shaming people's appearances and everybody feeling like they had to buy into it. Really seeing it makes all of the difference. And I think really understanding the story.
3: Yeah. And the paradox, because then you see him. In the depositions, you know, in the videos that we were able to provide to Eva. I mean, the the court-related videos are obviously from myself and my legal team. And we wanted the world to see how this man performs when he's being grilled by attorneys. You know, when the shoe is Mm -hmm. on the other foot and he is no longer in control of the courtroom. And as you can see, he's still being pretty abusive to one of my attorneys. He actually calls her a donkey at one point.
2: He didn't like being forced to sit in a chair and answer questions, particularly from a woman. Don't stop me when
1: I'm talking, Mr.
0: Charles. This is where the judge Please, do the please, don't stop me. Or, or behavior. You behavior. Behavior.
1: Who is behavior? Talking about behavior? Do you know how to spell behavior?
3: And I'm sitting right next to her. And there's obviously a paradigm shift because in the earlier depots in the Pandora Williams case, I'm sitting next to him. So I'm... On, you know, the Bikram, the defense side. And my adversary is Carla Minard, you know, the attorney for Pandora Williams. And then there is a, a complete power shift when I end up being the woman who then takes him to court and my former adversaries pitch up and join my legal team. So that that was very interesting. And I think that's something Bikram didn't expect.
1: It's clear that Bikram could not have been such a successful sexual predator if he did not already have this successful cult of personality around him. Let's talk a little little bit about how they get there and and about these teacher classes and this whole sort of boot camp of uh, sweat and yoga and, uh, insults and motivation. This is really interesting part of the story.
2: Teacher training is super interesting and it's, you know, I don't know how it evolved exactly. And, you know, but he was doing it from quite early on. And this is where a, he made most of his money. It's nine weeks. It's on location. People are segregated in a hotel. Um, they pay between, I think now it's around $14,000, but it used to be $10,000. So it's expensive and they're locked in into this place with hundreds of people, and they're doing hours and hours and hours of yoga together in a hot room. They're doing endless lectures. They're not eating enough. They're not hydrating enough. Everyone's exhausted. And if you look at, you know, I'm no cult expert, but it's pretty clear how cult leaders get people to fall into their cults. And it's generally, you know, the brainwashing happens when people are exhausted, emaciated, um, you know, removed from any familiar environment. So it's pretty sort of textbook 101 cult leadership.
4: It's like, I, I was watching this and I was like, Bikram, it's like he watched Wild Wild Country on Netflix <laughs> and then decided to come up with this <laughs> whole thing. Or maybe they watched him. I don't know. He had the Rolls Royces. He had like everything, all of the the trappings. The only thing they didn't do was build an airport.
3: Yes. If you look at the timing of it, the Bhagawan Rajneesh uh, left the U.S. on his Alfred plea in the late 80s, and that's sort of the time when Bikram's starting to come into major money and prominence and starts putting together his collection of Rolls voices. It's Bikram who emulates the Bhagawan Rajneesh. So the Bikramites are basically sort of a follow on from that. And Bikram certainly did have, um, you know, a lot of inspiration from the Bhagawan. My understanding, just based on conversations with, with Bikram, is that they never overlapped or anything. Of the sort, sort, but we do have people in the Bikram community who came to us from the Sannyasin, from the Rajneeshi community. And some of those people still come to yoga class. But just to pick up on what, what you were asking about the teacher training, I mean, obviously, I used to run Bikram Yoga and I'm pretty familiar with teacher training. It's a feeder system into the yoga studio ownership. It's called affiliation, franchise, chain, whatever you want to call it. In order to own and operate a Bikram yoga studio, you have to go through Bikram training. There is no other way to open a Bikram studio, right? And Eva's right in that the revenue stream generally came from teacher training, but don't underestimate the royalty income that was coming in from studios, particularly overseas in Japan and so on and so forth. There's over 650 Bikram yoga studios But the teacher training continues to this day, I'm afraid, you know, as you've seen.
1: Eva, can you tell us about how the sexual assaults began?
3: Well, what I can tell you is what I
2: know from, you know, firsthand interviews that I've done with people um, and everyone that I've spoken to. I guess in, it was 2013 is when the people started speaking out. They'd already been, when was it? Mickey's shaking her head. 2010, 2010 late 2010. Sorry, late was 2010. that Pandora 2010? Sorry. Yeah, have, okay. yeah late 2010. Okay, so in, 20, yeah. in 2010 was the first complaint, the first, what well, was the first essentially case that became settled. And it's Pandora who's in. The film, and that's that's the woman where he calls her a black bitch and calls her cancer, and she left the teacher mm. training, and she sued him successfully. And because she was the first person, she was the first person to sue him, so you know this is all covered by insurance, and she she got a she got a good settlement out of it. It's all you know, it's all NDA um, agreements, but. She settled. And then after that is when all the cases started coming out. Sarah Bourne, who's in the film with the long hair, the you know, who was a great mm-hmm. yoga teacher, she was the one who, was, who captured national attention.
0: So one day I was teaching a yoga class, came out of the class, and my daughter looked up at me. She wasn't even three years old yet, and she said, Mommy, I want to be just like you someday. I want to teach yoga. And all I could think when I looked into her eyes, was, you can't do that, you'll get raped. I thought, I have got to find somebody to represent me so that I can make this more public. And you have to remember, you
2: know, one of the things about this film is this is a pre-Me Too film that's come out in a post-Me Too world. And what I have found out through my speaking with people in the community is that There are women that have said that he sexually assaulted, abused or raped them since the 70s. And my feeling is is that, you know, people don't change. Someone doesn't just suddenly become a rapist or a sexual predator. I believe he's been like this for a very long time. I believe this behaviour has been happening for a very long time. The climate has changed. What women will accept has changed. And you really have to credit this series of young women who came out well before Me Too and pointed the finger at someone who was so powerful and also held you know the keys to their livelihood and existence so it was it was it's a pretty extraordinary story on that level
4: it's really amazing to me the interviews that you do have on camera and one of the things that strikes me about all the people that uh, speak on camera about first coming into the community is that it seems like they're all longing for something you know whether it's healing uh, physically or emotionally everybody is looking for a Path, uh, and you know, I, you know, I can imagine if you are a young uh, woman in particular, and you're, you know, really interested in this brand of yoga, and you, this is the only way to do it. You can imagine a future for yourself that's very fulfilling, where you're helping lots of other people, perhaps owning your own business. But it really does seem like this kind of yoga really had a pull on people who were looking for something. Can you just talk about why? That was that this particular kind of yoga attracted people who felt that, you know, that emptiness.
2: And again, this is not surprising. I mean, there were definitely a group of people that were attracted to this yoga who were seekers. They were looking for something, whether they had an injury that needed to be healed, whether they were in recovery, whether they had emotional turmoil, you know, whether they needed to lose a lot of weight. Um, and it wasn't just women. It was men and women. And it was really important to me in the film to have some n- sort of, you know, non-stereotypical yogi men like Jacob, who's the, the bald man in the film, who was a huge, a bi- yeah, I he's amazing. And, you know, he came because he was overweight and he needed guidance. Um, John Dowd, who's the older man, who used to be a yoga teacher. He was just looking for something different. One of the things is it also attracts a lot of A-type personalities. So you do have a lot of like CEOs and really it's a very sort of... It's it attracts competitive, hardcore people because it's not an easy workout. It's hard. So I, I imagine people who like running or, you know, people who like really pushing themselves um, are also attracted.
1: You had people who basically said that, that it was an accomplishment yeah. to physically get through yeah. the class, especially the first yeah. time. So it,
2: it, it does it, – it, you know, it – it's not unlike a cult on that level, where it does attract people who are looking for something, and what that does is it gives the person who provides that a power and a and a position where people really look up to him. I mean, and it's honestly, I have friends that do Soul Cycle, and they talk about their Soul Cycle instructors in such glowing ways, and I always I, I feel like people people are looking for leaders people are always looking for someone that will help them whether it, whether it means they'll be they'll feel better or they'll perform better or they'll be a better person or their confidence will be built and there's a lot of people who are looking for that in
3: the world and i think bikram just filled this this place really beautifully for them but and just going back to that point eva was making about you know the cultishness of it all yeah i mean he's he's really creepy seeming right and but one of the things that really struck me when i began investigating these sexual assault because during the course of the Pandora Williams litigation evidence started you know coming out about sexual assaults that had occurred during her training and prior assaults including sarah and many other mm. brave young women who came forward and sarah maggie and some of the others have been featured on you know other shows and things of that nature they have done press in the past but take it from me that just From the witness stand, I was able to rattle off, I think, about 30 names of women who had very credible sexual assault allegations. And the issue that we had, why were they coming back after the first assault? And they were coming back... yeah, Why because that? this is their community, remember? And even Sarah says it even in her in her own pleadings that she just took precautions. They tried to stay away from him. They tried to make sure they were not the last one left alone with him. Whoever's the last one left alone with him. And then and then, you know, one fine day I find myself in exactly the same position as these girls. And by that time I knew that he had you know, that he was a predator. Um, I've I've done like a lengthy interview on this whole like Stockholm Syndrome thing that goes on at Bikram Yoga. I don't know if Eva used Mm -hmm. some of that footage. I think she used a little bit of it, but there is. It is like a parallel reality. It's very, very dystopian. And when you're in it, it's very hard to break out of it. And you'll see, I mean, if you come to any of the screenings, you'll see yogis and they'll be happy to see each other you know I'll be happy to see the girls and some of the yoga teachers at the screening in in LA and you'll try for a moment to try to forget it's a bit like being in a dysfunctional like abusive family type thing right right
1: well Mickey can you tell me he's fled the country but what is the state of his actual business that infrastructure where money would be coming in and going out does that survive?
3: Yes. Uh, so basically, the infrastructure is is three corporations. They they've been placed into what is known as Chapter Eleven bankruptcy in California. So the federal courts oversee that. Um, in addition, there are a couple of companies that were owned by his children to which he very quickly transferred the trademarks and the copyright, the IP is really at the heart of the business. So those companies are are under federal court supervision here. However, Bikram personally did not file BK bankruptcy because he's outside of California. And so he's operating basically a shadow Bikram Yoga, which they've set up overseas. Hmm. I'll give you a couple of examples. You know, they Set up something in Hong Kong called Bikram Hot Yoga Limited, and then try to argue to the judge that that had nothing to do with them. And the judge is like scratching his head, going, "But it says Bikram Hot Yoga Ltd. and it's got a mailing address in Tortola, in the British Virgin Islands. Mm. Like, who are you trying to fool here? You know."
4: But Eva, I do want to ask you about you know getting the women to speak on camera, especially Sarah and Larissa. Um, what was that like? You know, for me,
3: these people
2: had spoken before, so I wasn't the person getting them to speak for the first time. But very much with Sarah and Larissa, they'd put this behind them and they'd moved on and they'd gotten on with their lives. And so for them to have to come out and speak again about it, that was the thing that I had to sort of convince them to do. And... what I normally do is, you know, I'm very, very honest with people. I had a lot of conversations with them. I usually give them some of my previous work to look at, and that sometimes I think helps. And I think I did that with Mickey as well. You know, if they can see her the kind asylum, of If they can see the work that I do, then sometimes that will give them confidence to know that I'm good. You know, they can trust me. And you know, I just I actually just saw Sarah on Friday night and showed her the film for the first time, which was fairly terrifying. Um, it's always it's always you know you're you're always worried. You know, you want to make sure that you are of their stories and 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 sarah was you know she said she said it was like it was actually it was really i hope she doesn't mind me saying this but she said it was actually she never got closure because you know she had to settle and she said the film was for her like having a trial which was just a really lovely thing to say so she she felt really um i think she just felt closure finally but you know she's really moved on with her life it was a long time ago
1: has anyone tried to block the film either.
2: No. I've had other experiences with films in the past where, you know, uh, there's the potential threat of an injunction, you know, or something like that. And I guess with the work that I do, I've done work in the past where, you know, you've taken on governments before, where you've broken laws before. Um, So one of the things that you absolutely have to do and be meticulous about as a filmmaker – making these kind of films is the fact checking. And, you know, Netflix are great about that. You know, we have a large legal team. Uh, every single thing in the film is fact checked multiple times. You have to have multiple sources. So you just, it's, its again, it's its its investigative journalism. You just have to be super thorough. So no, there's there's nothing that can happen here. I think, look, I think the only thing that could happen is threats. You know, Bikram has for a long time operated in a way where he'll threaten people and try and scare people. But, um, you know, it's not something that I've, been particularly concerned about.
1: Eva, you end the documentary with Patrice Simon saying, uh, I'm glad he's still doing his training, so I think he's going to make a comeback. Why end on that particular note?
2: I guess, I guess the point with that is I wanted to show that there are still people that, have faith in him and believe in him. And even people that have distanced themselves from him, you know, they, they want to make it very clear that the yoga still lives, that the yoga is amazing, that it's healing, you know, that it, that it needs to be preserved. But I actually think, look, the word comeback is, you know, maybe implies something else, but I don't think he needs to particularly make a comeback. He's he's currently... There's currently a teacher training going on in Mexico with uh, probably more than 100 people. 60. There was 60 people. There was one in Spain a couple of months ago that looked like it had around 100 people. You know, he's making millions of dollars a year. He's travelling the world. He lives like a celebrity. He gives talks that he gets paid a fortune for. I mean, in my head, he doesn't need to make a comeback. He's still living the life. He can't be in his beloved Beverly Hills, and that's the one thing that I'm sure eats him up and destroys him to a degree, and he's diminished because of that because this was his... This yeah, this was his home. This was the promised land. This was his image that he projected. But all of that said, he's still beloved by a lot of people. So, I guess the reason that we end with that is, you know, in my head, he has he he never he never didn't have a comeback. He was he's always been there. He has not been punished. He's gotten away with it. And to me, that's the most irksome, horrifying part of this story.
1: So this uh, story broke before Me Too, as you pointed out. I'm wondering if you think if the story broke today, if it would play out differently.
2: That's a really good question. I mean, this this is another really interesting thing. You know, Bikram has never been tried criminally in California or anywhere in America, the district attorney has not gone after him despite multiple women coming out saying they were sexually harassed, abused, or raped. And so one of the things that I've been saying when I when I screen the film is what we need to do is put pressure on our new fantastic super liberal governor, Gavin Newsom in California, to put pressure on Jackie Lacey, the DA here to go after Bikram criminally. There is enough evidence, I'm not a lawyer, but the lawyers involved in all these cases say there is enough evidence and you can use the depositions from the civil cases and there is enough evidence here to go after him criminally and that's the only hope of really ever getting him back to America to face the music.
0: And that's it for this week's episode. We'll be back next month with a new true crime series for you to add to your watch list. You can find this show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review this show. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Pineapple Street Media and Netflix. Our music is by Hans Sue. I'm Melissa Slaughter. Till next time.